0: This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.
1: All
2: right. Well, you're brave enough to come back, and that's good. So we're going to plunge in here today and uh, get started. Ross Snayman, our uh, ministerial director, will be back. He is, uh, wife's father is not doing well, and so they're trying to, he's trying to stay in contact with her down in North Carolina. But us bow our heads and we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, as we um, move into this topic on church authority and church discipline and these things that make to hold us together as a people, we pray that you will really bless us and encourage us, may have a good understanding of how we should work and operate in your work. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, yesterday we left uh, talking about the representative form of church government, and I left you with the four levels uh, of church government that we have, the local church, local conference, and local union of conferences, our union of conferences, and then general conference, and its divisions, and that's the way that works. We are going to start right here today, well, let's see. I got get the right button here. Organization and authority. That looks like it's going back instead of forward. That's right. There we go. Okay. The General Conference, the highest church authority under the Bible. Now that's my topic, but I get it from them. This is uh, Church Manual page 30. This is not a quote from Ellen White, but it's a very important quote in my estimation. The Bible is the foundation and source of belief and practice. That's what makes us different, say, than Roman Catholic communion. That basically They have big councils, but for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we're saying to ourselves that everything that we do comes under the authority of Scripture. So even a general conference session, even though it has authority, has to come under the, the Word of God as, as its, its authority. So that's uh, that's voted. That's part of what we believe. It's a foundation and source of belief and practice. On this basis, notice those words: the General Conference in session determines the stated fundamental belief of the church. So, when you read those twenty-eight fundamental beliefs, they kind of the basic beliefs that glue us together. Those beliefs are there because of Scripture, and no other reason. Okay, as I mentioned yesterday, this is a class, so if you have comments and you want to uh, ask questions, we'll try to get into that as well. Now, this is another quote from um, the church manual. You may not can read it all over there, so I'll go over here. In the church today, the General Conference session and the General Conference Executive Committee. Anybody know what the General Conference Executive Committee is typically called? called annual council. You ever hear of annual council? If you're moving out in circles, you'll hear of annual council. And whenever annual council meets, you want to kind of perk up your ears because that has authority between sessions. And annual council has the union presidents and officers and representatives from every union in the world. Now, that's been some change even in my own lifetime because used to be the North American division kind of ran the show. I hate to put it that way. but, but uh, And this has been a healthy change in my thinking that now uh, we bring those union presidents, whether they're from Asia or from uh, Africa or wherever they're from, we bring them and they come and represent their conferences, their fields at a general conference uh, annual council. And it's also known as the General Conference Executive Committee. I went to this last uh, Annual Council, and um, and it was uh, it, it was very interesting that had everybody stand up that was a member of the Annual Council and General Conference Executive Committee, and so that they were recognized. You had to have a registration, of course, to get in there. Those of us who are not members, uh, but are conference presidents where they are actually holding an annual council. They can hold an annual council not only in Washington, D.C., but they can hold an annual council in other parts of the world. So at that point, those conference presidents can also attend, but they don't have vote, but they have voice. So in other words, we could go to the microphone, say who we are, and make a statement. But you don't have voice. The, vo- the votes are given to the union representatives of those unions from around the world. It'd be impossible to bring all the conference presidents and there's too many conferences, that kind of a thing. And the general conference is built on unions. So that's what happens. So in the church today, the general conference session and the general conference executive committee between sessions, in your local conference, what is the authority between constituency meetings? Your conference executive committee. In Michigan, we call it the Michigan Conference Executive Committee, MCEC. Is Is the highest uh, ecclesiastical authority. What's the word ecclesiastical mean? Church government, that's right. It's a focus on church government. Uh, Ecclesiastical church authority in the administration of the church. In fact, at this last annual council, I heard uh, the general conference president make the statement that... When certain issues come, the session, the general conference session, that's the one that happens every five years, is the highest authority we have in the church to appeal to. It's a, it, you can't go above that. It's under scripture according to our bylaws and so forth. But that's as, that in, and from an earthly standpoint, that's as far as you can go and take something. Um, the general conference uh, executive committee is authorized by its constitution to create subordinate organizations with authority to carry out their roles. Now, what would those subordinate organizations be? That would be unions. That would be conferences. That would be institutions like Andrews University, which is a general conference institution, and most uh, colleges in North America, the union president chairs it. In Andrews University, it is a vice president of the general conference that chairs the board of trustees. Yes, in the back. What role or authority does the fundamental beliefs have? The fundamental beliefs have, they have authority of the general conference in session because that's where they're voted. They should be. In my estimation, um, In my estimation, no employee that's a, in a teaching or ministerial employee should come into the Seventh-day Adventist Church without them being questioned as to whether they support those 28 fundamental beliefs. In fact, we will not hire a minister in the Michigan Conference without asking that question and looking them right in the eye. And I've got testimony of people in here that know that's the truth. Um, we want to know if they actually have any trouble or problems or questions about the 28 fundamental beliefs. And I think that's, I think that's part of the role of uh, ad- administrators in, in the Adventist church. You wanted to, I want to come back there so you can get okay. your you're own something else there. All right, now let's, uh, let's go on here, and we can talk about some of that other things later. Let me, let me finish up because this is a pretty important paragraph. Um, The General Conference Executive Committee is authorized by its Constitution to create subordinate organizations with authority to carry out their roles. In other words, the Michigan Conference has authority to carry out their role. They don't define their own role. They carry out their role in the state of Michigan. The, The Lake Union has authority to carry out its work in the Lake Union. Therefore, all subordinate organizations and institutions throughout the church will recognize the general conference session and the general conference executive committee between sessions as the highest ecclesiastical authority under God among Seventh-day Adventists. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. What that really says, the local conference or the local church or the local union does not have a right to go its own direction. Sometimes people come to me and they say, well, what's the mission conference mission statement? I say it's the same as the general conference. That's our mission statement because we're part and parcel. In the Western world, sometimes we get that wrong idea. We think, well, this is our local church. We, no, you're part of the Seventh-day Adventist church. In fact, you name your town or your, your neighborhood or your territory, and you are the Seventh-day Adventist church in that territory. But you're not independent because you are connected to the world church. The Michigan Conference is the Seventh-day Adventist church in that territory. But we are not independent. And we do not have the right, what did I say? Of independent action outside the defined roles for which we are put there. That's the reason a conference president cannot become a dictator. Now, sometimes, I'm not saying it didn't get abused at times, but or a, a union president, it doesn't have the right. And we're different from corporate America. People, that word president really messes people up, and sometimes I regret having to carry it, meaning that it, uh, it sometimes denotes something that isn't, isn't a reality. Uh, sometimes I, I've talked to conference, a conference attorney, and, and he says, yeah, he says, you, you have all the responsibility and no power, to, and he laughs. Um, but uh, we're different from corporate America, and corporate America, the president of the organization basically is empowered to do as he wishes, as long as his board of directors will go along with it, meaning, and yeah, and the stockholders, but he, he hires and fires at will, at will. Uh, that's not true in the Adventist church. We are a committee system. And a committee system, I have responsibility to that committee to uh, have them back or enable us to make decisions that uh, need to be made. And so you have to keep those committees informed. It's a different mindset. Even in the university settings, Those systems are different, often very different, from the local conference. It's very interesting. You're from Andrews. I sit on that board of trustees, and sometimes their motive, not motive, that's not the right, um, motive, no, that's not the word I want. Their, um, Their structure is just different from the way... Way we do it. I'm not being critical. I'm just simply saying it's different in the church. We're a committee system, not a corporate system, and uh, we are not independent in our in our actions. Okay. Uh, all, therefore, all subordinate organizations, institutions throughout the church, and institutions, in other words, colleges, universities, don't have a right to do their own thing. They have certain roles, but they're, they're under this church manual and the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist church, just like conference and so forth. Sometimes the organizational structure <clears throat> is a big, bit different in academia. Okay, and the general conference and the highest ecclesiastical authority under God among Seventh-day Adventists. All right, let's go. A divinely pointed minister. I want to get into some more of this, this kind of stuff as we go down the road, but let's take a question right here. Craig? Right. And the executive committee. Yes. His question is Can you explain the difference between a session, like a general conference session, and, say, the annual council between constituents? Same, same thing would happen with a union conference, a union constituency, and, and same thing with a Michigan conference. Um, yeah, the, the executive committees act between sessions as the highest authority but they don't have the power of a session. In other words, the executive committee of the Michigan Conference cannot change the bylaws of the Michigan Conference. Um, It cannot overturn a vote that was taken in a session. So the session still has power, and that's because in the Adventist Church, we believe that the power actually rests in the body in a representative form of government. So the body sets up certain things that cannot be changed. Then in between those sessions, these executive committees carry that out. Now, that means they, they can hire, they can appoint, they can do those kinds of things, but it's still got to be under those that umbrella and within those contexts. Does that help? All right. Uh, let's talk about... We're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about a divinely pointed ministry and... Um, Today we have two sessions. We have this one back-to-back. I don't know if we'll get into redemptive discipline, but for sure tomorrow we will be in redemptive discipline. We'll probably take all three sessions, or at least a good chunk of it, tomorrow as we get into that, if we don't get into some of it today. Let's talk about the conference president here. And that's right where, by the way, the, the church manual starts, when it starts talking about a divinely pointed ministry. It gives us some introduction but then it goes right, first, thing it practically, first person it practically talks about is a conference president, and it's talking about a local conference president in, in this uh, context. The conference president should be an ordained pastor of experience and good report. He stands at the head of the gospel ministry. Now, underline that because this whole thing is about ministry. In the conference, and his chief elder or overseer, those are biblical terms, of all the churches. He works for their spiritual welfare, counsels them regarding their activities and plans. He has access to all churches, all the churches, and their services, business meetings, and boards without vote, unless granted by the church, or unless he is a member of that congregation. He may, by virtue of his office, preside over any meeting of any church when necessary, he has access to all church records. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like your pastor, am I right? Basically. And that's what he is. He's basically appointed as a pastor over, over the churches to carry out those pastoral functions that we have there. Now let's go and look at conference president and council with conference committee directs all conference employees, such as pastors, Bible instructors, and departmental directors, who receive their credentials from and are responsible to the conference, not the local church. So in other words, all those, I, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but in North America, because of certain laws, we are, we are, the conferences are now becoming responsible for the people who are hired by the local church That's a huge change. We're going through it. We just put um, a few months ago a vice president in for personnel because it's just overwhelming us. Uh, You add that, we could have 1,000 people on our personal payroll. uh, So it gets to be kind of a, um, and if you don't have all the paperwork, the government is into making a lot of money if you don't have all your paperwork uh, put together right. So, anyway, that little part there, but it's really saying that those that are not responsible to the uh, local church, all those responsible to the conference, come under the president in council with what? In conference committee. So he's not just set out there and said, okay, you just go ahead and do what you want, like corporate America. He has to do this within the council of his conference executive committee. Okay. Any questions we go along here? All right, departmental directors. Some people say, what's the difference between departmental directors and conference uh, uh, administration? Departmental directors foster important lines of denominational work under the general direction of the conference committee in consultation with the conference president. Departmental directors are not vested with administrative or executive authority, so their relation to local churches is advisory. Now I want to ask a question. Uh, departments have been made fun of in some places and, and uh, mocked in some other places. Why do we have departments in local conferences? Why do we have Family life and youth and all of these different departments. Why do we do that? We're unique. Adventists are really, really unique in this area. So why do we have these people operating at our conference? Anybody want to take a, a guess at it? What's that? People ask for it. Yes, that's a Yes. I think you're, you hit the nail right on the head. Here's where The Adventist Church is not vi- narrow in its understanding of ministry. We want the whole person to be ministered to. Are we interested in family life? Somebody should have said amen. That's right. We're interested because we want to see families happy, we want husbands and wives happy and that kind of thing. We have, in Michigan Conference, and I can't speak for other conferences, I'm looking at uh, Vice President from the Alaska Conference, Quentin Purvis, who has roots in Michigan. And I had to do that quite uh, But uh, in, at least in Michigan, we have 100 churches, Elder Snayman, that are 100 members or less somewhere in that neighborhood. So if you've got a church that's got 50 members in it, how much is it going to be able to generate resources, and I'll just pick on family life, to nurture family life in that congregation? It's not going to have the resources to do that. In a small congregation, they can only focus, they better focus on Bible studies and baptisms and more Bible studies and baptisms. That's what they really need to focus on if they're going to move and to grow that congregation. So they're going to need outside help to come in and minister to family life. That's why we have a family life department in the Michigan Conference. It's there to advise, to produce resources, to produce opportunities to minister to families in that conference, and that local church can take advantage of it. So you can take any department that you want to say, whether it's religious liberty, uh, ministerial education, whatever it is, and they are focused on those ministries uh, in that conference. So no conference president, no conference executive committee can carry out the work that God has given us in the big picture without departmental directors. They cannot do it. It's impossible to do it. Otherwise, you're just... You know, you're just one person and you're just, you can't even direct traffic because you'll get, let me tell you, churches have needs. How many of you have been pastors or are pastors? Let me see your hands. Yeah, I got several of you in here. So you know and I know when you're pastoring, you're busy. Am I right? Quentin Purvis, pastor of the Lansing Church in Michigan. Uh, Lots of stuff under his umbrella. Even had Chad Bernard, who was the principal of the school, as his co-partner in education at least at that point. Those are busy guys, and uh, there's a lot of work, a lot of demands, um, and you don't want me to get started down listening. So departments are there to be resources for those local churches. Now, if you've got a great big church, uh, and we have some large churches, some of those churches may be able to provide some of those ministries. But how many huge churches do we have in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Usually those huge churches are around our institutions. But you step away from those institutions, and the churches are not large by most standards. Now, most of our churches, you step away from institutions, most of our large churches in Michigan are, are going to be in the neighborhood uh, Pastor Snayman, 400 plus or minus, uh, that kind of a thing. That we would consider a large church. So even that's not really huge, but most of our churches are quite small in, in the big picture. All right, uh, and but they're not invested with authority. And unless the conference president, the manual does allow us to say to a departmental director, I would like for you to go and handle an, uh, an administrative issue in such and such a place. And the church manual allows me to do that. And sometimes I do that because I need that help or we need that help. Now, in Michigan Conference, because of our size, our ministerial director, our youth director, and our uh, educational director are all vice presidents, and we don't make a big deal out of that, but we have invested them with some administrative executive authority because they're overseeing uh, big chunks of employees in the Michigan Conference. All right. Continue to go on unless I see hands starting to wave there somewhere. How about ordained pastors? Let's talk about them for just a moment. Ordained pastors are appointed by the conference committee to act as pastors. Now, I want to say, why do, why do in the Seventh-day Adventist church, why don't we allow local churches to hire their own ministers? Well, let me give you some reasons why you're thinking about that because there's a lot of churches in, the, in our world today that would say, in the Adventist world, that say, we just want to hire our own pastor. Well, in the Adventist church, we have a concept that we, that we have certain fundamental beliefs. We have certain administrative movements to start churches and to do all those things. You have to have a pastoral team to get that done. And so the administration of the conference basically is guaranteeing that those pastors are going to be solid Adventist pastors that are administering to those congregations. You can have a congregation that may be off the deep end somewhere, and they say, well, we'll just hire our own master, and we'll hire somebody that looks like us. I tell people, sometimes I have congregations that say, well, how can we just hire who we want to hire? Most of our congregations in Michigan really wonderfully, they cooperate with us greatly, But sometimes you have some people that raise that question. Why can't we just hire our own pastor? And my response is to them that anybody that's hired in the Michigan Conference will not simply pastor one church. They will pastor many churches before they're finished in their work. Uh, Quentin, I was trying to think about how many churches you pastor. We brought you in to start with. Can you tell me off the top of your head? Yeah. Well, you had seven, then Lansing's eight. Right. Well, by the time you finished your ministry in Michigan, you probably pastored ten churches. Yeah, so he's he's pastored a huge chunk. And I don't know if you add all the members together, what percentage would be. But so any pastor we bring in is going to pastor a good chunk of the Michigan cost before they're done. So this is a way of making sure that we are, are sending pastors. It's, what, it's exactly what the early church did, is they sent pastors or they sent missionaries. The local churches did not appoint their own. In fact, you find the Apostle Paul making sure that Titus went out to Crete to make sure that they had their ministers put in place by their, their organization. So that's why the Adventist Church does that. Any questions on that? In the back? Yeah, we actually have... Uh, Well, now you're, you really opened up uh, a real thing here. As I was working on, my, on this, uh, this morning, I was thinking about that. I said, at some point, I'm going to get into that. Um, I, the reason the Adventist Church is not, well, do you want me to do that now or do you want me to do that later? You want to bring that back later? That's a real, that, we'll get into that. Maybe after I get through church discipline and all that, we ought to jump into that. That's a huge thing. It's a big deal. It needs to be changed, and we're going to need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to do it. We're going to have to re-educate congregations. We're going to have to re-educate our pastors. We're going to have to re-educate people like myself. We have to take a different look at how ministers perform. I even see in the church manual, I see the reflections of the settled pastor business. I say reflections of it, but that was never God's intention, and it was never the New Testament model. It's not a New Testament model. It's not a spirit of prophecy model. It's a model that we're running all over North America. And believe me, I go into churches, and they want to know we return our tithe, we pay, we want something in return for it. It's, it's, a, it's a mindset that is not biblical. And I get going on this. The mindset that's biblical is we return our tithe so we can hire more people To to move into new territory and to take the work and to raise up churches and train them how to run themselves, basically, with some oversight. Ministerial oversight is always there. It's never taken away in the New Testament until we finish the work around the world and then Jesus comes. Pretty simple. But we have really diverse from that today, and I think a lot of our problems sometimes and a lot of the stress and the gray hair that we get and... uh, so forth, comes because we are not following that model. But how to get it changed once you've gone down that hill and how to get it back up the hill, you know, when there's snow on the hill is pretty tough. And, uh, but it'll happen. I believe it will happen by the grace of God. But maybe sometime before we're done, if we have time, we can get into that subject. I'd love to get into that subject because we need a revolution. Talking about a revolution, that's where we need the revolution. All right. Yeah, and you'll hear, you'll. I, I'm probably going to, I, I'm not sure she would disagree with where we're at today and the largeness of the world church. You have to think about the world church. I don't know how many languages this church is operating in. And you're, from, you're going from churches in the bush of Africa to the big Asian cities to the sophistication of Western cultures. And we have to have something that's clearly defined that binds us together. Many of us do not see those 28 fundamental beliefs as a creed, but as a statement that expresses who we are as a people and what we embrace. Um, so um, probably I'd have a little different view of that. But I'm glad for you to have a different view, but I'm not sure Ellen White would agree with that. And she's the one that pushed us for organization when we did not one organization. And, it, and, of course, there's dangers with that, too. Yes. well I, I suppose you could you could say that uh, let me let me explain to you the challenge that we have if we 're going to maintain our unity in the church, we have to know what that unity means um, so let 's say this conference let 's say that I have or some other conference president that we have a different view on the millennium or we have a different view on uh, i don 't know any one of those, so he 's hiring pastors who are diametrically opposed to the pastors that we're hiring on that particular thing, pretty soon you're going to have fragmentation everywhere. If people like me who do the hiring don't understand what the Seventh-day Adventist Church believes in its expression in its highest uh, government authority. So that's what those 28 fundamental beliefs are. The other thing is those beliefs can be adjusted. It's not like we don't adjust those when I say adjusted or clarified. We're in the process of doing that right now. I mentioned that yesterday on number six. Um, So I I think that there's a time that you reach a certain level that you can't, you have to have some guideline, you have to have some clarity. Otherwise, we fragment into a whole bunch of different uh, pieces. What's that? Yeah. And that's a good point, the non-negotiables. Here's a, here's a circle that we all say these are not negotiable because the world churches clarified those. There's a bunch of stuff outside of that that we can all talk about and say, okay, we have a difference of opinions on. But on that circle, if you can't stay together in that circle, you can't maintain the unity. All right, go ahead. You can come back.
3: Right. Don't see of any one of
2: our fundamental beliefs. If we wanted to grow our fundamental beliefs right. all of the two doctrines in the Bible, we would stop at 28. Well we would not know where to stop. Yeah. Well, the point is the Adventist Church is still we just added the twenty eighth one, uh sometime back, not too long ago. It, they're not meant to encompass everything. You can't just like the Church manual, it can encompass everything. It's like it's like uh standards of living, lifestyle standards. I tell people they're not the maximum. You haven't arrived just because you start there. It's just the beginning. It's just the start of it. And I think that's what he was saying with that point. Yeah, go ahead.
4: I, I was just saying that my, I have two, uh, some, uh, two sons that are 15 and 16, and they can grasp... What's in those twenty-eight? In fact, they have it on their iPods. Yeah, they can go in there and they can look at it. If if I tell them, you know, I mean, at their age, you want to know what our church believes? Here, here's, you know, fifteen hundred pages. <laughs> Figure it out. It's going to be so overwhelming to them that they're, you know, it's they're not going to, they're, <laughs> they're not going to do it. Not not right now. There's there's too many things flowing through their head. If I can keep them, if, if they want to understand what, you know, the Basics of what we believe. I can, it's in your iPod. Just look it up. And I mean, I don't know if that's, if that's what it was originally meant for or not. But it's, it certainly, I think, simplifies it. And I think to, uh, to make it a huge issue might be uh, overblowing it a little bit.
2: All right. Well, let's. Uh, I, I don't know that we can agree on every nuance. The truth is, we do have a church manual, and we are endeavoring by the grace of God to use that to guide the church. And its growth, and I'm just through here, so I don't go back after that uh, other thing get get my ears blown out there. Um, And the fact is, the Adventist Church is prospering with this, as long as we uh, use it in a good way. All right, let's um, let's go back to the to the Adventist pastor here just a little bit. They're appointed by the conference committee to act as pastors or district leaders, not to take the place of the president in their respective fields. They're not charged with administrative plans and policies of the conference. The ordained pastor is assisted by the local elders. By virtue of ordination, the pastor is qualified to function in all rites and ceremonies. The pastor should be the congregation's spiritual leader and advisor. Pastors should instruct the officers in their duties and plan with them for all the lines of church work and activity that's uh, Church Manual, page 35. All right, let's go on just a little bit. Organizing, uniting, and dissolving churches and companies. Some of the, I don't want to get too terribly bogged down, so I'm not covering every nuance here, but just some of the things. How many of you participated in starting a new church? Let me see your hands. Isn't that an exciting thing to do? Don't you love to do that? It's just so much fun to see a new church get started, to plant a new church, and we really should be into planting new churches uh, all over the world, and, and the Adventist Church really is. When the, when the conference committee approves, notice who does the approving here, the establishment of a company, the leadership team of a leader, clerk, and treasurer are appointed. The difference between a company and a church is that a company is basically operated by the conference executive committee, whereas a local church basically operates itself within certain uh, perimeters. A church is organized by an ordained pastor on the recommendation of the conference executive committee. That's how that does. Now, how about dissolving or expelling churches? How many of you ever had to participate in that? Let me see your hands. Not much fun. Uh, and you hope not to have to do that very often, but occasionally it has to be done. What do you do if you have a church that goes rogue on you or goes um, off the deep end is another way of saying it? Let um, me go back to there. Uh, the spirit that should permeate all efforts to help an erring church is a spirit of trying to redeem them and pull them back. Um, now, there's several reasons you can dissolve a church. One is the loss of members sometimes, and there's a, there's a process in the church manual. If you have members that have a church, you basically just lost members and you have to re, uh, dissolve it. There's a process for that. I'm not going to get into that here. Uh, two although it would kind of be fun to get into some of it, apostasy or refusal. This is the big one. Uh, a refusal to operate in harmony with the what? Okay, what could that be? If a local church, for instance, says, you know what, we're not going to send our tithe in. We're going to keep our tithe here and do what we want to do with it. Then they're out of harmony with the church manual. Then you've got a problem. Uh, I'm just using that as an example. Or they may say, you know, we don't like the Sabbath anymore. We think we'll just start keeping Sunday, but we want to be Adventist. Uh, then you've got a problem, uh, and you have, to, you have to deal with that. Um, okay, so apostolic refusal to operate in harmony with the church band. Let's go here. Uh, let's, um, and, and I should say about this that there is a process for that, but basically you cannot dissolve a church unless it dissolves itself for whatever reasons, unless you have to take it to a constituency meeting. Now, the reason for that is that a conference is made up of churches, and the constituency sisterhood of churches votes those, those churches into membership in essence. So only a conference constituency meeting can take them out of that family. So, but there's a process for that. Any questions on that? All right. Membership candidates should thoroughly be instructed. Uh, let's talk about if to become a member in the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Candidates should be how instructed. So, we have a statement um, in Michigan where people do poor work. We tell our past, we want you to do good, solid work. We want you to really prepare members. For the kingdom of heaven. That may not be ready for translation, I'm using that uh, in quotes, but we want them prepared. We want them to know that they are joining the Seventh day Adventist Church. Um, and so if that's not done, we kind of have a word for that, a proverb. We call it slip and dip, um, where people are not well instructed. They're just, oh, you want to be baptized? Wonderful. Uh, you know, I'm ready to do this, but they don't know what they're getting into. They don't know why they are taking those stands. I love Jesus. You want to be baptized tomorrow? We can get that worked out for you. And we'll tell you about the Sabbath and a few other things in the remnant church a little later, maybe. Um, We want, if, if you don't build the church well, you're going to pay for it later. And you pay for it in apostasy. So it's really, really crucial that members be thoroughly instructed. Notice this. This is unique in the Adventist church. I doubt you'd find this in hardly any Protestant church left public. What did I say? Public examination before the church. A pastor should satisfy the church by public examination that candidates are well instructed, are committed to taking this important step and by practice and conduct demonstrate a willing acceptance of church doctrines and principles of conduct. Church manual, page 45. What, how do you see that done in the Adventist church? I see it done in Michigan all the time. I, that's right, the Big Lansing Church. I've been there when they baptize and they line them up in front and they read the baptismal vows and they have to say yes to each one of them. And the pastor doesn't want to do that unless he's make sure he's in thoroughly instructed yes. in the start. with. Yes? Oh, you want to, you want, I know where you want to go there. Um, I think the Gospel of the Great Commission is the biblical place for that. Because you cannot be baptized unless you believe, and you cannot believe unless you've been taught. Let me just explain a little. Yeah. 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 Um, Right. I don't want to see that again. Sure. Well, probably, I, 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 don't know, when you, I don't know what we mean by all, what we mean by that word. Uh, I will tell you that I think that if you don't instruct people carefully before they're baptized, that you're going to get buyer's remorse. Uh, all of a sudden, they show oh, I didn't know about Ellen White. I didn't know about that kind of thing. And, yeah, I, don't, I didn't know I was supposed to not smoke. Boy, the members around here, they kind of feel kind of odd about that. So... If, I don't think you can believe in Christ unless you know about Christ, and that's a whole subject in itself that I could get into, and maybe I should hear just a little bit. Okay, Chad? From a, I'm a simple person. When I met my wife, yeah. when I that, I loved her, I'm going to have to start coming back here so because they're going to be fussing at me. They can't get all this stuff on the tape.
0: When I, when I met my wife and I realized I loved her, I, I proposed. Well, I didn't get married that day. I went through a process of meeting her and I met her family and even though and she met my family and even though our family was crazy we still got married. Uh, so that's kind of how I equate when I marry Christ. The family's nuts. <laughs> but the family I, love, I mean I tell people you're going to join the church, welcome to a lot of crazy people, but we all need Jesus and how about joining us in that walk? And but you need to know what you're getting into. And I that's kind of how I feel about it. I believe that uh, salvation is 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 uh, by grace and through Jesus Christ, and Jesus is enough, totally. But when you get married to Him, you want to know what you're getting into, and I, and that's kind of how I see it as far as joining and, and why it's important to know. Hey, if you're going to join the body of Christ, which is biblical, you should know what you're getting into.
2: Yeah, I think we're not all far too far apart. I think we've got to. First of all, educate the individual what that relationship is going to be like. And then, number two, we keep educating the relationship. We don't stop relate, uh, educating the le- relationship. Okay, I've got some uh, hands over here.
1: I agree with everything that was just said, but what about Paul and Silas when they got imprisoned and the jailer came to them and in one night he learned about Jesus and he was baptized?
2: Well, I don't know that I can answer all that, but I will tell you this, that they were operating out under an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there is an Ellen White that says the Holy Spirit can teach you more in a moment than you can learn in a lifetime. So I think some of that was going on uh, in some of those cases. Uh,
1: it's Mark, fin- Mark
0: Finley did a fantastic job explaining some of these things. You, you'll notice miracles were involved in these quick baptisms. Miracles were involved, a lot of other things. Mark Finley, if you ever look into what, what he writes about that, does a good job explaining why these... Uh, we're done so quickly, but on a normal basis, he really, really advised us to do some proper training.
2: It's a good point, and I and appreciate it. Okay, I was looking. Did you want to add anything thing that? Oh, you were. I thought maybe I'd get you involved in here. All right. you have anything you want to jump in on that?
3: I'm resisting. The, I, think, I think one of the challenges that we have is that if we don't... If we don't think about the practical application of the gospel and the way it works, it's nice to think that a pastor's got the responsibility of teaching a person after they're baptized. But what if that pastor, and this has happened to me and it's happened to almost every pastor, that they get moved right after that person is baptized. Our churches are not trained. We've not done the work that we should. Our churches are not trained to follow up those people and make sure that they're taught. The pastor moves on. And it may be a year, in some cases, before a new pastor gets there. Six months, that person falls through the cracks. There's no teaching done. There's no standard by which you make that decision. There's good gospel order and good reasons for good gospel order that we don't want to lose sight of. And I think that's one of the reasons the church manual does that. And I think it's biblical and spirit of prophecy based.
2: All right. But we don't... uh, uh... I think the point is also well taken. We don't want teaching to stop after their baptism. We want that discipling to continue. Okay, I see a hand back here, and I'm going to take the... All right. Uh, you might have to move out the corner out here, and that'll be a little easier for me to try to make sure that uh, I get your comment here, and then we'll move on down the road.
3: Well, just a quick question uh, regarding also with the pastor ordainment. I'm wondering uh, what are the... Probably in quick uh, answer, like what are the requirements for a pastor to be ordained? Because back in my local conference, I think they have an index, and one of them are determined by the number of baptisms that pastor has had. And so that kind of, I don't know, at least logically it kind of messes up things.
2: Oh, good. I'll let the ministerial director answer that question. What are some of the uh, qualifications that we look for
3: uh, on... uh, when we get ready to ordain men to the ministry. Ellen White actually makes a statement relative to baptism. She says that if a... Uh, I'm sorry, ordination. And in preparation for ministry, that if a, a pastor, for example, doesn't have any fruit for his labors in the first six months, he's mistaken his calling. Um, but there are, there are many things that we're looking for when we're looking at a, a pastor in preparation for ordination. And that's one of the things that we look at because we want to be sure that God has placed his um, approval on that, uh, that service of that individual. We're also looking for an individual who loves people, who really cares about those people, and wants to nurture and minister to people. One who understands orthodoxy of the church and the Bible – What does the Bible say? We want to be sure that they're going to uh, hold up all the truth, not just the ones they happen to think are the ones to hold up because they represent the church when they are ordained. And they can go anywhere and represent the church. It's got to be consistent together. So we're looking at several different things. Um, We're looking at the spiritual life of the individual. Is God present in their lives? Um, You know, we yeah family I mean you know got two wives we got a problem with that you know I'm just being extreme so we're looking at all of that to put it all together uh, there's a,
2: at least in our field I can't speak for other fields we, we take that serious it's not a good old boys club in fact we have got some people in here that went through our ordination process and then later sat on the ordination committee Quentin I'm looking at you again Quentin Purvis and I'm going to come down here and get your comment since you went through it um, was, that, was that a pretty serious process
1: Yeah, ordination is to be taken seriously. It is a call into the gospel ministry. And if God has called you into the gospel ministry, you have to bear fruit that you've been called into the gospel ministry. As I've sat through the ordination committee, um, there were many questions of what I believed, where I stood. Do you, once again, the same question that I had at my interview um, about the 28 fundamental beliefs is, uh, is there any that you don't understand? And so am I able to explain them? And so the presentation of, of the gospel, the fruits of the gospel, are all looked at. You have four years of ministry where the conference looks at you and says, have you been called? You say we have been called. We believe that you've been called. Now let's see if you've been called. And so it is a very serious process. And it is a very spiritual process. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, let's just
2: go on down here. We got kind of got uh, on that. So let's talk about these things. How about baptism into the Adventist Church? We've talked about that just for a few moments here. How one becomes a member? You come through baptism. What about rebaptism? Uh, the church manual does have a statement on rebaptism that rebaptism shouldn't be just a fad kind of a thing where you go in and. Just people just re to be re-baptized. What, is a, what do we use for rebaptism? in the Adventist church once a quarter? Communion service. And that foot-washing service is a wonderful opportunity for rebaptism. It's really like a mini rebaptism. It's a recommitment of our lives to Christ. There are times when we do re-baptize people, and we re-baptize people from other churches uh, as well. Professional faith, I got an extra number in there somehow. Uh, profession of faith is another way that we bring people in. How do we bring people in the profession of faith? On what basis do we bring them in on profession of faith? They, they've been baptized in another church by immersion, but now they, they've given their hearts, they've been faithful to the Lord, but now they have more truth. They want to become Seventh-day Adventists. We'll accept that baptism uh, as, as legitimate. Um, there may be other times we bring people in professional faith. If somebody's very sick and you can't take them into the baptistry and maybe they're uh, on their deathbed, maybe, hopefully not. But if they revive and are able, then they're later baptized. But sometimes we bring people in professional faith in that kind of a situation. What if you have trouble in a different part of the world and you can't get people some membership transfer? You can bring people in by professional faith in that situation. There are some situations, even in Western worlds, where there's lots of good communication that we cannot get a local church to transfer membership after six months. They allow us to bring those people back into the Adventist church on professional faith because you just can't get the transfer. So there are mechanisms that we use, use that uh, for. All right, the conference church. How many are aware that there's a conference church? Okay, some of you. Anybody know why, why we use a conference church? Why there is a conference church? There was a conference church because in the early days of the Adventist Church, and we still need it to a certain extent today, there were a lot of isolated members that could not be connected to any local church. So, therefore, we had a conference church, and the conference president is basically the pastor of that church. The conference committee is its basic constituency and uh, operates that. Sometimes people want to belong to the conference church to kind of hide their membership. We, uh, we don't like that. We want them to be members of a local congregation so they're connected to the fellowship of a local congregation. Okay, Kyle, I'll see your hand. you move out to the to center aisle here. That'll help me uh, uh, get your comment uh, going here. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Just a quick question on the rebaptism. Um, what do you use as your guidelines for rebaptism? I'm just uh, wondering that because I, I just had a situation that came up actually a week ago where there was a, an, an elderly lady who, anyway, she had explained to me her situation and she, she didn't know if she should get rebaptized. She had turned away from the Lord like 20 years ago and had really turned her back, you know, for a significant period of time, but has since come back for the last 15 years and been in the church. Um, that was a, it, was, it stumped me a little bit because she didn't know if she should be rebaptized or not. And so I just thought I'd ask that since you mentioned the rebaptism, what your guidance is for rebaptism situations, uh, what wisdom you might have there? I don't know that I
2: have a lot. All those are very uh, unique uh, situations. I think if somebody's been a- away for a long time, they're still members of the local church and they, they feel a need for re-baptism, I wouldn't have a problem with that, that case. In, in that case, I wouldn't have a problem. It's, it's, not, it's not a fad kind of a thing. It's a real heart need and she's been away for a long time. I wouldn't have a problem with that at all.
0: This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at
4: gycweb.org.